This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Teachers are striking across America. From Arizona to Oklahoma to West Virginia, teachers are not simply demanding higher pay. They are also demanding better learning conditions for students and better working conditions for all state employees. And they are succeeding. These strikes have just shown in practice a much more effective way of fighting, which is to withhold your labor, create a crisis, and force the politicians or the employers to listen to you. For the most part, uh, the strikes have won, not just in beating back attacks, but in making some chipping away at the underfunding and underpaid. Many of these industrial workplace actions are taking place in states that have passed right-to-work laws meaning workers cannot be compelled to join a union or pay union dues as a condition of employment. The strikes are also happening in the states that Trump won in the 2016 election. So what does this mean for public education generally? and the 2020 U.S. presidential election specifically. And there's more rhetoric now around supporting teachers, but there's not much reason to suspect that the mainstream establishment is really going to be committed to bringing about the changes that our schools need. My guest today is Eric Blanc, the author of the new book, Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike Wave and Working Class Politics. Eric is a journalist and a former high school teacher and has followed the -the on-the-ground developments of the Los Angeles, West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, Denver, and Oakland public education strikes. Eric Blanc, welcome to Fresh Ed. Great. Thanks for having me on. So on February 27th, 2018, five days after protesting began, the president of the West Virginia Education Association, Dale Lee, announced to a crowd of teachers gathered outside the state capitol that the industrial action that they were undertaking was over. His words, though, weren't actually received that well. Um, So can you describe this moment and and what actually happened and what what it meant to the protests in West Virginia? Yeah, the moment you're referring to is really one of the turning points and iconic moments of the, the whole strike wave in education since 2018. It's basically when the Uh, West Virginia strike went wildcat, which is to say that the workers refused to go back to work despite both the state, all of the politicians, and their union leadership telling them uh, to go back. But they they refused because, in fact, uh, they hadn't won their demands yet, and they were quite skeptical both of the uh, powers that be and, and to be honest, their union leadership, which had not been fighting in a really systematic way for a very long time. So the workers ignored the dictate to go back they continued to strike and they ended up winning, uh, but it took another week. And that turning point uh, really was the moment where the West Virginia strike started capturing the imagination of people across the country. And when it became clear that something new and very powerful was afoot. So how did these strikes in West Virginia start? So before talking about how they spread to other places, how on earth did they begin? Well, the background Uh, obviously is that there's been a really systematic push to dismantle public education in the United States, both by Republicans and Democrats for years, and and it got exacerbated in the wake of the economic crisis in 2008, where you have just really drastic budget cuts and austerity, which in turn furthers the push towards privatization and union busting across the board, not just in red states. So there's a backdrop of deteriorating conditions um, across the United States for educators. But 
I don't think you can say that it was just conditions getting worse that automatically led to this type of rebellion because frankly conditions have been getting worse for educators for a very long time without this type of response and for other workers uh, many of whom were actually much worse off than educators the deteriorating conditions hasn't automatically led towards rebellion so it's there's more going on there part of the reason you see these strikes popping off now is that in education unlike a lot of other workplaces you do have a relatively solid number of organizers and radicals and progressives who are oriented towards trying to build a more progressive union and a more fight back labor movement so you had this crew of people in West Virginia and Arizona Los Angeles who realized that it was necessary to fight and who had a plan to start pushing in that direction so you know this idea that the strikes were a spontaneous upsurge really underestimates the very serious and long organizing that took place uh, in, you know, to make them happen. So there was a lot of history here of organizing and certain individuals that were, were mobilizing for perhaps quite a while. I mean, um, in your book, you, you mentioned one person who actually had experience in the 2012 Chicago protests. I mean, so it did go back quite a long time. Yeah, in Arizona, yeah, Rebecca Gorelli uh, ended up becoming one of the key leaders of the Arizona strike. And she, as you mentioned, had been a direct participant in the 2012 teacher strike in Chicago, which in some ways was really the first opening shot of what is now a national teachers rebellion. That, that really captured the imagination of folks across the country at the time and set into motion the types of organizing, the types of social justice, radical unionism, that now we've seen uh, really explode across the country. And was it just teachers going on strike in these schools or and in these states, or was were these strikes a much larger mobilization? Yeah, no, definitely. These were not just teacher strikes, contrary to what a lot of the mainstream media framed it as. The secret of success in the West Virginia strike in particular, but, but also elsewhere, was that it was uh, an industrial strike, which is to say that it included all workers uh, at a school site, not just teachers. Because you know, for those of you who might remember or, or are educators, you can't run a school just with teachers. You need uh, the paraprofessionals, you need the secretaries, you need the custodians, you need the bus drivers, you need the cafeteria workers where you, know, you have cafeterias still. And in West Virginia, the bus drivers in particular played this very crucial role, both in making the strikes happen and then uh, having them continue when it went wildcat because in West Virginia students really do depend on the buses to get to school because of the geography there's there's no way for them to get there without the buses and when the bus drivers announced on the eve of the strike and then midway through the strike that no matter what else happened even if the teachers were starting to waver the buses weren't going to run that was this turning point actually in both of these uh, really important moments in the strike so yeah, it was very important that it wasn't just a teacher strike and that it was really all education workers. Now, what was the public behind these different strikes? I mean, I was in Oakland a few months ago and I saw, you know, signs in store window fronts supporting the Oakland teachers who had recently been on strike. So, I mean, what is was there broad support from the general public for these teachers and, you know, other support staff? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's worth noting that this might seem like a surprise because for years the establishment, both Republicans and Democrats, 
really demonized public sector workers, um, framing the budget crisis and a lot of the um, you know various problems of the state and a, a given area as the fault of greedy public sector workers and teachers were privileged and that this problem in the schools was teachers. So it's it's not so obvious that um, parents would have come out in, in mass in support of a teacher strike. And a lot of educators were initially quite skeptical about doing something like a work stoppage. And they were worried about, you know, this narrative that they were hurting the students, right? By depriving them of an education or not having uh, a safe place for them to go. But because of the organizing that the educators and, and to a certain extent their unions did to win over parents doing things like raising demands on behalf not just of educators but on behalf of students, um, that went a really long way because you had teachers in places like Oklahoma or Arizona or Los Angeles foregrounding not the fight for pay but in fact, the fight for more funding for students in Los Angeles, they were in, in Oakland as well, fighting for more counselors and nurses. So it made it much harder uh, for the narrative of the politicians to gain traction. This idea that teachers were just fighting for themselves was clearly not the case, right? And because of that, the level of public support ended up being really astronomically high. We're talking on a national level, the, the polls have it in the high 70s of support for the teacher strikes and their demands. But even in the red states, uh, you're looking at very similar numbers, 75% in Arizona, 76% in Oklahoma. So yeah, these strikes were overwhelmingly supported by the population at large. And what were the teachers demanding? Well, it, it, you know, it varied uh, state by state. Some of the commonalities were there was certainly a lot of demands for better pay. There were demands for affordable health care in West Virginia. The West Virginia strike really centered around health care, not pay per se. One of the major demands in a lot of the states was for just increased funding for students, that the necessary services and school learning conditions just weren't there to provide a decent education because schools have been systematically underfunded. So there was a demand for just more per pupil funding uh, in a lot of states. And in a place like Los Angeles, I think it went furthest on a certain type of social justice demand. Uh, as far as anti-racism, they called for an end to racial profiling of black and Muslim students, called for the district to provide funds for immigrant families who were faced with deportation, all sorts of um, really important social justice demands that again made it clear that this was not just about pay, it wasn't just about educators, but it was really about improving the education and really life chances for working people and students as a whole. In the different states that you've studied, where these protests have happened in different states, would you say that the teacher strikes have been successful in achieving some of these demands? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the overwhelming majority of the strikes have won um, much more than any other form of protest over these recent years. You know, educators have, have been protesting for quite a while, and usually it took the form of just lobbying the Democratic Party or at best uh, showing up for like a yearly lobby day at the state legislature. So these strikes have just shown in practice a much more effective way of fighting, which is to withhold your labor, create a crisis, and force the politicians or the employers to listen to you. And so, yeah, in a place like Arizona, you win a 20% pay raise for educators, you know, it's unbelievable. Uh, West Virginia has won important uh, wins as far as not just pay, but maintaining health care costs lower, 
defeating attempts to impose privatization, bring in charters. So for the most part, uh, the strikes have won, not just in beating back attacks, but in making some chipping away at the underfunding and underpay. That being said, the systematic you know, improvements that public schools need haven't been won. The strikes were a first step in that direction, but you know, on the whole, still quite limited. So there's going to have to be a much more sustained movement, not just with strikes, but you know, on the political level to bring about the funding and the change in priorities of our society, to be honest, in order to really provide the schools that teachers are demanding. So one of the things that is striking, no pun intended, about these strikes um, is that they are taking place in you know, right-to-work states. They are taking place in conservative states, so to speak, um, or for the, for the large part. And so, you know, it, it's, it's quite amazing to, to think that, you know, were these strikes actually illegal to begin with? Yeah, so it, the, the first thing to say there is, in fact, public sector workers in most states in the United States do not have the legal right to strike. There's only 13 states in which public sector workers have the legal right to strike, and elsewhere it's basically illegal. So that's not just a red state phenomenon, it's not just a right to work phenomenon. I, I live in New York, for instance, and public sector workers here do not have the right to strike. So the, you know, the challenge, therefore, is, is really much broader, um, but it was put into particularly sharp relief in a place like Arizona or West Virginia, where not only is there not a right to strike, but the unions are much weaker, there's not collective bargaining, um, and you have a deeply entrenched Republican Party. So it really came as a surprise to a lot of pundits and you know and, and some activists as well uh, because the perception amongst a lot of people in the United States is that red states are these deep bastions of conservatism uh, places that voted for Trump or you know presumably just um, beyond the pale when it comes to trying to win people to progressive politics and I think what the strikes showed is in fact across the board there is a working class looking for an alternative to the status quo and when that alternative is provided uh, in the form of the teacher strikes, then even people who voted for Trump and you know a lot of educators who struck and who are fighting against the Republicans who took illegal action, uh, they had voted for Trump. And so it shows that there's this latent uh, reservoir of anger uh, that can be channeled, but it was not easy because as you mentioned, you know, the strikes were illegal. So it took a lot of organizing and a lot of time to build up people's confidence so that they could defy the Republicans who are threatening to fire people if they struck. So I, I do think that one of the big lessons of the strike wave is, you know, if labor is going to revive, it's going to mean breaking the law in a lot of cases. And you can do that and win if you have enough people on your side. And that was really what the organizers kept on saying. They said, look, if we all go out, what are they going to do? Fire us all? And in fact, yeah, when they when they, when they did strike, uh, they broke the law. But they had so much support and they had such a deep uh, level of organization and mobilization that the Republicans basically had their bluff called on them because they realized that if they tried to repress uh, a movement like that, it probably would have backfired. It would have made it even deeper because people would have been so incensed that they were, you know, jailing or firing teachers just fighting for better funding for students, it, it just, it, w it wouldn't have uh, resolved anything. 
So how did they mobilize then? I mean, if the strikes were illegal, I would imagine going through the typical union channels might not have been possible. Like, that, you know, they had to have organized, you know, the rank and file had to organize sort of amongst themselves. So how did they do that without, you know, in a way causing too much attention in the beginning? I would imagine it, was a, it must have been a delicate process. Yeah, well... Part of the dynamic in these red states was that the strikes were overwhelmingly initiated and and really led by the rank and file. Um, The unions uh, in these states, like elsewhere, were wholly oriented towards um, just lobbying the Democrats and were pretty um, stubbornly resistant at first against the idea that started spreading about, well, maybe we should strike to stop, you know, these... uh, attacks where they existed or, or to fight for better conditions. And it was really rank and file activists, oftentimes socialists, who formed, you know, Facebook groups of all things that started uniting these different teachers and educators across the state to discuss with each other, to share information, uh, to share memes, to get each other riled up, to, to kind of get a sense that actually something was growing and to build momentum. And it was through these uh, Facebook pages, although, you know, I don't want to exaggerate the role of social media. There was also a lot of serious organizing in the workplaces, a lot of um, really well traditional organizing methods done by these organizers. Even if the unions weren't fully on board, um, they did systematically try to do one-on-one meetings at workplaces, get people to wear red on the same day to build up kind of a collective momentum. And it was these types of organizing on the ground combined with uh, social media and Facebook groups in particular that were able to create enough of a groundswell that eventually in West Virginia, the union was pushed towards uh, supporting the strike. And similarly, that was the dynamic in Arizona and Oklahoma and these other states as well, where there was a rank and file insurgency And for the most part, the unions eventually got on board under considerable pressure, though. So when you look across at West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona, what would you say are the biggest differences in how these different strikes came about? You know, there's there's a lot of different history and traditions in each of the states. So one of the aspects of the West Virginia strike, which was real, although somewhat exaggerated, was that West Virginia has a strong labor tradition you know, the history of the mine wars and the coal miner militancy, and as well as the more recent teacher strike in 1990, did play a role in, I think, explaining why the West Virginia strike was the first in 2018, why things popped off there, because there was a level of accumulated militancy and, and, you know, labor movement know-how that made it possible to get the ball rolling. That being said, the real main difference that I try to highlight in the book that it can explain why the strikes developed much more successfully in West Virginia and Arizona, and less so in Oklahoma, was that in both West Virginia and Arizona, you had what I call militant minority, which is to say you had a a leadership of workplace organizers who knew how to organize, who had been organizing for a while, and who had an orientation towards building towards a strike and towards class struggle politics generally. And you didn't have a similar layer like that in Oklahoma. And so if you look at Arizona, which I I, I try to go into a lot of detail about because it's a little bit less known as a strike, and it also puts into the sharpest relief the importance of this layer of 
organizers, often radicals, often socialists, because in Arizona, there was no living labor tradition in, you know, in contrast with West Virginia, for instance. So you can't really explain the success of the Arizona strike uh, in the absence of uh, really foregrounding this amazingly dynamic leadership layer that was able to draw on the lessons from the Chicago strike, from West Virginia, and build up systematic power and organization and win. And in Oklahoma, you didn't have an equivalent leadership group. And so they much more relied on social media. They did a lot of tactical errors. There was not really any systematic organizing on the ground. And that's one of the main reasons why their strike was significantly less successful. So the big lesson I draw there in the book, on, on this question at least, is it does highlight the need for the left, and you know, which historically has played a key role in uh, leading labor movements, to reorient towards uh, workplace organizing, towards union organizing, so that in the struggles to come, we can play a similar role as uh, West Virginia or Arizona and avoid uh, sort of the missed opportunities like we saw in Oklahoma. One of the things that I was quite amazed about in your book was when you talked about how some of the teachers that were involved in these strikes were heavily influenced by Bernie Sanders, or at least the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign. Can you talk a little bit about how that campaign influenced two years later the strikes in West Virginia and Arizona and Oklahoma? Yeah, well, again, I think the big story here is it shows that this red state, blue state narrative is very superficial because Bernie played a huge role in uh, West Virginia and Arizona because he legitimized in 2015 and 2016 a basic class politics that has continued to reverberate up until the present and that took the form of the strikes, you know, in a, in a different iteration. So one of the, you know, one of the really surprising aspects of the strike wave that I, you know, discovered when I was on the ground was a lot of these core organizers in West Virginia and Arizona, the people that initiated the strikes uh, first got organized together through the Bernie campaign in West Virginia, for instance, uh, Jay O'Neill and Emily Comer, who, uh, you know, really initiated and began the strikes uh, organizing in the summer of 2017, were members of uh, the Democratic Socialists of America and had organized a study group with each other uh, in the summer of 2017 around uh, Jane McAlevey's book, No Shortcuts. But it was in the context then of after the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, that they had gotten together. And similarly in Arizona, the key organizers, you know, someone like Dylan Mugella, who was one of the central leaders, the first organizing he'd ever done was a keg party at his college to raise funds for Bernie in 2015. So these are relatively younger teachers uh, who got inspired by Bernie's message of taking on the billionaires, who are sick of the politics as usual, both of the Republicans, but again, of this kind of failed orientation towards just hoping the mainstream of the Democratic Party was going to deliver anything. And they pushed in a much more radical direction. And it, it's sign of the times then that both socialists and Bernie supporters were seen as legitimate leaders, uh, despite the red baiting that happened. And you had Trump teachers, you know, Trump voting teachers uh, siding openly with their socialist leadership of the strike against Republican politicians, you know, and so you can only explain that in the context of a pretty deep alienation from the status quo amongst millions of working people and the revival of a you know socialist movement after the Bernie campaign. And so what's happening today in West Virginia? I mean, I look at my Twitter feed and I read the news and and 
you know, the teachers are still protesting. There, there's still collective action that is happening. So can you, you know, bring us up to date since, um, you know, at least from the end of your book to today, what on earth is going on in West Virginia? Right. So the powers that be really got whomped in 2018. The, the strikes caught them by surprise and they just kind of lost across the board. But they aren't stupid and they realized how much of a threat uh, this new movement is to them. So they've done everything now to recohere themselves and to try to systematically beat back the gains that were won and to try to defeat the teachers, basically. And in West Virginia, where it really started, uh, that has been very much a ongoing battle. Um, and so earlier this spring, the teachers and education workers in West Virginia struck again because the Republicans tried to again impose a really draconian policy of uh, this time imposing charter schools and privatization in the state, penalizing uh, striking even further. And in the spring, educators went on strike and defeated that in another statewide illegal strike that didn't quite get as much national attention, but uh, in some ways was just as powerful a strike as uh, the year before. But again, as you mentioned, just as we speak, the Republicans, again, even just a few months after having been defeated on this, are relentlessly trying to bring back the exact same bill. And their hope is now that it's summertime and that schools aren't in session, they'll be able to impose this because uh, educators can't strike because schools are closed. So the um, dynamic is very um, challenging. Fortunately, the public support is overwhelmingly on the side of educators. You know, the state, uh, led by the Republicans, actually did town halls on the question of privatization and charters, and 88% of the people that participated uh, were against what the Republicans were proposing. So it's just clear that this is a minority view uh, backed by out-of-state corporations that is just trying to smash the teachers and public education. Uh, but it remains to be seen whether they'll be able to get away with it uh, because it's summertime. Luckily, the teachers are mobilized, they're going to the Capitol, uh, they created enough fissures that um, some of the politicians, including the governor now is talking about potentially vetoing or opposing this bill. So there's definitely movement is continuing to generate enough uh, power to be able to potentially win. And we'll just have to keep our eyes on what's going on and hopefully keep on supporting them because the national support really is a big part of the story for any of the education workers who've gone on strike, having a sense that people across the country and really across the world have their back has been a really important factor for giving them the energy to keep on fighting in what often feels like, at this point, an endless battle, right? It, it just The Republicans just, and oftentimes the Democrats, uh, just won't give up in trying to push through these really reactionary policies. Yeah, I mean, I do think of someone like Cory Booker who ends up going to all these charter school conferences, he gets paid to give keynotes. And, you know, and, and a lot of other Democratic candidates are, are pro-charter school, for instance. So I guess, you know, what, what then does this all mean for the 2020 election? You know, how all this mobilization around teachers over the last few years, you know, what do you see the impact on the 2020 election? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a few different ways you can look at this. The first is, if you really understand what happened in the red state strikes, you see the potential and the need to project a sharp working class politics 
So rather than trying to tack to the center as someone like Biden or Hillary did in 2016, uh, that's actually a losing strategy because what's going to motivate people to get you on board and to really get excited about a campaign and turn out to vote is not the same old status quo, but is a clear vision for change that is independent of uh, the establishment. And so the strikes re represented that potentiality. And I think that the candidacy of someone like Bernie Sanders is really the best electoral expression of that same type of politics. In the same way it already helped build the strike wave, now it can continue to be an expression of, and in turn, a boost for education militancy. So, you know, the, the Sanders campaign has been actively using its lists to tell people to show up for picket lines. And there's a big movement growing now, a labor for Bernie, educators for Bernie, in which there's a push within the teachers unions to call on their union leaderships to allow the members to vote on who should, uh, who the union should endorse in 2020. Because last time in 2015, 2016, the big education unions, which, and these are the biggest unions in the country, uh, rammed through uh, in a really unilateral anti-democratic fashion, a Hillary endorsement. And so there's a rank and file upsurge now, many of whom uh, people participate in the strikes, calling for a democratic vote and a push really hopefully through that democratic vote to have the unions endorse Bernie and to use that to build the movement and to de defeat Trump and to build the schools that we need because the issue of public education is central. People support it across the board, but unfortunately, the mainstream of the Democratic Party still remains quite tied to the corporations that want to systematically underfund education. And there's more rhetoric now around supporting teachers, but there's not much reason to suspect that the mainstream establishment is really going to be committed to bringing about the changes that our schools need. Well, Eric Blanc, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. We're going to have to keep our eyes on West Virginia and Arizona and other states over the next few years and into 2020 for certain. So thank you again for joining. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Thanks for having me on. Eric Blanc's new book is Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike Wave and Working Class Politics, published by Verso in 2019. His work has appeared in The Nation, The Guardian, and Jacobin. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.